614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. And we took the bus on the road today. We are riding on the freeway and we are parking this thing in Indianapolis. This is our first time outside of the state of Ohio, but welcome, welcome my very special guest, Ms. Kelly Jones, managing partner of 68 Capital and also one of the co-founders of the Be Nimble Foundation. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. We had another conversation offline. We thank God that you could be here. We thank God that you're feeling better. So, yeah. hey, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since um, I learned about the work that you guys are doing at Be Nimble and at 68 Capital. We're going to get into all of that great stuff, which is what I think the audience really wants to hear, because everybody is buzzing about venture capital in the Midwest. Oh but I want to take the time to get to know you. So why don't you share a bit about your personal and professional background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is not the most exciting place in the world, but it is home. Um, I actually spent most of my career outside of the Midwest. Um, I lived over on the East Coast for a quite a long while, a long time, almost eight years. Um, and then also lived on the West Coast, which is where um, I really got into tech. Um, I started as a founder and then later uh, became an operator and uh, really found my place in really ensuring that more people of color um, had an opportunity to take part in the innovation economy. And so when I decided to move back to Indy in uh, 2017, I thought it was a great opportunity to really bring back all of the relationships I've had and um, people I've met and things I've done um, and, and really uh, allowing myself to uh, pour back into our community. So uh, I came all the way back just for that. <laughs> okay. And you, I, I, what is that feeling that I feel like, and, and it, it probably is across, it's cross-cultural, but I only know it from the Black perspective. When you go into a field and you don't see yourself, Mm -hmm. that feeling like something doesn't quite feel right here. I yep. need to do something about it. Was it, was it so glaring in tech that you had to do something or is that a feeling you've always had regardless of the space that you were in? You know, it was interesting. Like, and it's because my, um, the beginnings of my career were at the intersection of, of tech and entertainment. So I um, own and ran an experiential marketing agency where all of my clients were startups. Um, and on top of that, most of my clients were white startups, right? Um, and because I worked in entertainment, specifically the hip hop industry, I was working, um, doing like concerts and events and like large music festivals. Um, my culture was the people that was being catered to, but the people with all the money <laughs> were the startups that were coming in um, to be present. And I think, um, you know, my first indication was one, um, I think the music industry needs to understand, and I think they do now, but I would say back back then when I first started, I don't think the music industry, um, especially the people that were participating in the music industry, um, artists, um, you know, audio engineers, producers, really didn't realize how much the music industry is only built on tech, right? Like when you think about how music is made, how it's marketed, how it's distributed, um, all of that is tech, 
right? That was back when the blogs were popping, um, you know, two dope boys and hip hop DX and, and all those kind of places. And so literally everything that we had done had been in tech and we were running it, but we owned none of it. Mm. And that was my first indication, right? Um, and so when I switched from being a founder or, you know, an entrepreneur to an operator, it was actually after I worked with, um, I, I think I spent a year and a half, almost two years working solely with um, music technology companies, both hardware and software, doing the same stuff, event activations, go to market stuff, in-person events, um, and later ended up um, working for Akai and Young Guru, who's Jay-Z's DJ and engineer, um, was a brand ambassador on that um, with, with Akai at the time. And when we finished our engagement, um, asked me to join his team. And, you know, Young Guru, brilliant, like one of the smartest people I've ever known, um, you know, is Jay-Z's DJ and engineer, um, a photographer, create, like he's all of the things, right? A creative, a tech guy, like all of these things, Howard grad, like he checks all the boxes, um, but is also brilliant and really um, told really great stories and in, in, in connection points to why music and technology was important and why Black people needed to be in it more often, right? Um, so I think it was the combination of like my experience, um, knowing that we are controlling a medium that we own nothing of, <laughs> to working with someone that worked in that medium, also trying to convince Black people to be in tech. Um, and at that point, like I said, I got the bug um, and I was stuck on it and it became my mission. And it's been my mission, you know, I, since at this point, 2010 is when I started kind of on this journey. Um, and so then I moved out to LA and, and ended up working for Hip Hop DX as director of sales and marketing and then later moved to Blavity um, and, and got this opportunity to really think differently about what showing up really looks like. Um, and for me, it all meant ownership. It no longer meant to me, um, let's get people jobs at, like it's no, let's get people jobs at other black led companies so that we don't have to worry about what it looks like when we don't have any ownership, right? Like let's have ownership uh, be representative from the top to the bottom. Um, and I think that's the thing that's driving me. Um, that's the thing that keeps me motivated every day. It's the thing that keeps me waking up every day. Um, it's also the thing that I think keeps us going and keeps our work really relevant. Um, and I, and I think that's why it's become so important. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, at, at a very foundational level, it's that desire to belong, right? It, it's, it's that some things just don't need to be said. It's that head nod. Mm -hmm. you could give and like just something some things don't need to be said so for me it's it's at that foundational level but then like you said it's on the ownership level and wealth creation yeah but more, you know even beyond that it's job creation right it's the ability yep. not not to only make yourself wealthy but to others. bring others along and make them wealthy and then graduate to that next level where now you're investing in people mm -hmm. with the wealth that you created not only for yourself but the people who were part of your founding team Absolutely. And so how did that manifest itself after, uh, it, 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 you know, you kind of worked in the, the music industry and then made that leap to tech? How did that desire to do exactly what you've just explained manifest itself in the work that you're doing at Be Nimble and mm -hmm. now at 68 Capital? Yeah. Um, so I first learned about accelerators in, I believe, uh, probably 2013, I believe. I think it was before I moved to LA um, and it was around the time that they were spinning up. So Techstars was like the first company I learned about that did accelerators. 
and they were spinning up, um, they had just started spinning up um, industry focused accelerators. So they were doing a music one and Young Guru was involved. And so at that point I was like, well, I didn't even know accelerators existed. Like I didn't even know those were a thing at the time. And I got like obsessed with the model. Um, I've always, like, I've been a founder, I've been an entrepreneur, I've obviously supported entrepreneurs, I've, I've worked in, in businesses, and so knew that I had, you know, some expertise to share, um, and had an opportunity to sort of take part, um, you know, as a, a partner and mentor in that accelerator, and I think that kind of gave me the energy of like really wanting to do that, like really wanting to like work with founders, really wanting to be aligned with founders, um, help them get to the place where they can succeed and, and later like raise money. Um, and so that was the foundation, that was the basis. And then obviously the other side of that was, was to your point, like job creation, career um, and things like that. And so we picked those two umbrellas for Be Nimble Foundation. So we focus our efforts on talent and we focus them on entrepreneurship under talent, we actually have our own coding programs and our own um, training programs uh, that do sales and customer success. Um, we train them usually uh, 30 to 90 day programs and then we place them into jobs. Um, and that's both jobs locally, outside of Indiana, across the country. Um, and then the entrepreneurship side is an accelerator, um, now a series of accelerators, um, and then also workshops and seminars. Um, and so that's how Be Nimble started. That's kind of the foundation and, and the why I was inspired to start it. Um, and then later as we, you know, sort of went through class one and I, and I think got through class two of our accelerator, um, you know, I think our goal was always to start a fund. Um, I don't think I wanted to do it until way later. Um, like even though that we've now, we are now in the process of, of doing it now, like I, I really didn't see myself doing it for probably another two or three years because I really wanted to have a very specific, succinct, um, really targeted thesis. Um, but I quickly realized that if I didn't start it now, that a lot of companies that I was spending a lot of time with would not be able to raise capital. Um, and, and so we decided to go ahead and launch that uh, in 2019. Um, so I'll just stop there to, to start. But that's, that's essentially how, you know, LA, New York all came together to Indiana and be nimble. All right, and that's a good place to kind of uh, spend some time because you mentioned that the uh, part of what Be Nimble does is get people ready for the workforce. Mm -hmm. What do you think it takes for someone to be competitive in today's workforce, not just to get in a company, but to excel when they get there? So I have, I have a really um, interesting thought on this. Um, so the, the reason why, so one thing that we do that, that is really important, I'll, there's two things really, but one is that uh, we chose not to focus all our content on just coding. Um, and it was important for us because our key demographic, the people that we work with are generally either career transitioners, people that are unemployed, underemployed. Um, and so we're already working with adults that are just looking probably for something new. Um, and so a lot of what we wanted to do is see like what transferable skills can we switch over? Um, and a lot of times those that's easy, right? Like a lot of people that are in sales or finance or, or human resources, it may take just a little bit of massaging, but a lot of times they're able to really show up in, into roles like that. And then you obviously have your more technical roles um, where, 
you know, either you're coming out of a boot camp or you're coming out of a, a program um, and you're, you know, being thrown into a, a, a role. Um, I personally think that sometimes it's um, to the detriment of ourselves that we put a lot of the, the emphasis and impact on what we should do to be prepared. And a lot of times the issues come down to the employers. And that's something that we do. Um, that's the second thing that I really want to highlight because part of our program is that we don't place anyone at any companies unless we've taken them through um, anti-racism training, uh, anti-microaggression uh, training, um, all of those things. Um, and we were doing that way before, you know, pandemic, Black Lives Matter, the whole thing, because um, the number one thing we refuse to do is place any talent into an environment that would not help them succeed. Because when you're talking about people that are coming from probably a whole different world um, or are transitioning into a new space, they need support and they need patience and they need time to be able to get up to speed on everything. And I think there's this, um, the stain a lot of times on, you know, boot camp talent, you know, where it's like, oh, they're kind of rough around the edges or, oh, they need a little bit more, you know, um, polish and 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 I think sometimes it's like if we really want to diversify our tech workforce or at least these employers that say they want to diversify their tech workforce that cannot be an excuse right um there's a lot of people that get jobs um that don't look like us for with far less credentials so let, let's get that very very clear um right and, and I think and I think you know it's the thing that everybody defaults to oh well teach people how to code right well right. It's it's both the hard skills and the soft and skills. Soft. Yep. And what yeah. you find is that, you know, if it's not the hard, then it's the soft, right? Okay. And so it's the it, it to, to your point, it's training people who oftentimes maybe haven't had um experiences in how to move in certain environments. And so the, the idea is well, I'm skilled but that soft side is so critical. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think everyone has, you know, hard skills, soft skills stuff, especially if you've never been in a corporate environment. Um, again, I, I also think that's why I think a lot of times employers need to, ha should have some more patience with employees. I know that they're getting paid. I know that they're there to work and to show up and just do their job. But I really think that if we really want to ensure that our, um, our institutions, our organizations are truly diverse um, and we are supportive of diversity and we want diversity that I think employers have to also step up and like kind of shed what they see as um, a negative and really try to figure out how to support those people. You know, it's easy to hire as many black people as you want, right? Like you can, you can go to, you know, all of the events, you can go to all the HBCUs, you can scrub LinkedIn, you can, you know, hire 20, you know, black or Hispanic or Latinx people, right? Um, if they don't stay, that number means nothing. And a lot of times the reason why people don't stay is because of that lack of support, um, the lack of really great feedback, um, you know, the microaggressions, they're not feeling like they belong, culture that doesn't really feel like culture. Um, and I think that is the really the real defining issue uh, when it comes to people staying and then eventually people be, being promoted. It's a little more than just soft skills at that point. It then is like, what is the employer doing to ensure that their employees are developing correctly as well? 
All right. Not, not as if that isn't a heavy lift enough, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? At Be Nimble. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you know, the getting to the venture fund, which you knew was going to be something that came down the road anyway, because mm -hmm. and, and I hope I quote you correctly, because you just said this, a lot of the founders and companies that were coming to you in the accelerator, you knew that they might run into issues with funding. Mm -hmm. What was it about what you were seeing that made you come to that conclusion? Yeah, um, so it's a few things. So one, obviously lack of diversity behind the table. Um, there was no one that was making decisions that were representative of the founders that I work with. And, and the founders I work with are, are all black. Um, you know, right now there are no real, there are no black investors at any of the VC firms here in Indiana, at least. Um, so that's one. Two, I think is, uh, it was industry. It was really down to industry. Um, so Indianapolis uh, is a tech hub. It's seen as a tech hub. We've had really big companies and really major exits happen, right? Um, we've had Exact Target get sold to Salesforce. We've had Angie's List and Home Advisor, um, Interactive Intelligence and Genesis, right? And all of those happen like in the span of like four or five, six years. Um, so that's a lot of capital coming to uh, the ecosystem. But with that, when you think about the kinds of companies that those are, they generally tend to kind of sit in that B2B, um, MarTech, sales tech, uh, marketplace-ish sort of space. Um, and so if you have, you know, you might have some founders that are in that space, but if you also have founders that are, you know, creating consumer-focused things or um, CPG brands or e-commerce or direct-to-consumer, um, there's not enough expertise or capital um, that is going to be able to get them to the next stage. Um, so either they have to look at, you know, other firms outside of the state. I mean, most people are going to start with where they live <laughs> when they're raising, right? Um, and then eventually, you know, they'll have to go somewhere else. And so I already, I watched um, at the time that we had moved back and had, you know, had beginning to start thinking about what the fund looks like. I had watched at least three or four Black founders completely get like passed over. Um, for funding of any kind. Mm. Uh, and, and I don't blame our local ecosystem. I think they're fantastic. I think their expertise is great. They're open. They always meet with my company. So it's not a, a nod or a bump against what's here. It's just a nod or a bump against the expertise. Um, my expertise happens to be all consumer, right? And so th there happened to just be an opportunity to, to have another kind of expertise in the room. And, and I knew that if I continued to work with the kind of companies that I would work with, um, they would all end up either being B2B <laughs> marketing platforms, or, you know, I could, you know, one with myself and then also my network, start bringing in a lot more um, opportunities and people and connections. And so that is really when I decided that it was, it made sense for us to start the fund sooner um, because then we would not lose as many um, really great ideas um, or we would not miss as many potential unicorn opportunities. I mean, I think we missed one with a founder that's currently here is an app called Givelify. Um, it's a platform for tithes and offerings for, for church and it's electronic and they've been around for a while. They tried to raise money, couldn't raise, ended up bootstrapping it um, and are now, you know, have processed over $2 billion in payments um, and couldn't get a single dime of investment, right? Um, and a lot of it became, was because of not understanding the market, not seeing, you know, black church as a market, not seeing, not, you know, having an expertise in apps, right? Like all the, it's consumer driven, right? It's based on people. Um, joining and then also businesses signing up. So it's this two-sided marketplace. Um, 
I completely understand where where you're coming from. And so I, what I heard is, you know, the other person across the table may not necessarily look like you or understand. Uh, and then the industries that uh, typically get funding in that particular ecosystem, unless you look like them or adjacent to them in terms of what you're building, um, the investor might not see the opportunity fully. And you, mm -hmm. you gave that example of the tithes and offering. Mm -hmm. So in terms of companies that you're uh, uh, accepting into the accelerator, is that process based on companies that you think at some point you might wanna fund? I is there a path to that in, in terms of your selection process or how are you evaluating startups that enter your, your accelerator? Oh yeah, great question. So. Yeah, everyone that enters our accelerator, our goal is hopefully that we can fund them. <laughs> you know, it's, it has to be a good enough idea at the outset that it'd be something that I'd be interested in. Um, there's obviously a ton of other things that come into play when it comes to making those investment decisions, however. Um, but, you know, the one thing that is really important to, to sort of distinguish is that Be Nimble is the holder of the accelerators and 68 is the capital. And so what happens is now Be Nimble becomes 68 Capital's platform. So it means that no matter who we look at, um, if they're not ready for investment, we can send them to you know the accelerators or we can send them to our workshops or our seminars and we never lose anyone in the pipeline. Um, and then if we make an investment, then you know we have a built-in you know team of mentors and strategy people and you know strategic partners that can provide value. Um, and I and so what's what we've built is essentially a tried and true proven, you know, platform for founders that will now support, be supported by more capital. Um, and I think that is something that um, is not necessarily different, but I do think it's something that is going to provide more help to a lot of founders that are going to need a little bit more hands-on training that maybe, you know, I can't sit on every board. Um, you know, Paul can't sit on every board, you know, um, but we do have, you know, a team of 12 people that know everything from, you know, retail and CPG to HR and go-to-market strategy. So there's always someone to help. Um, and, and I think that is what's really going to make sure that our companies end up being super successful. All right, let's talk a little bit about serendipity in business because you said this is not a fund that you planned for. So how did the fund side of things come about? What's that story? Yeah, like I said, I, I mean, I knew I would start a fund, um, but I, I started it just for those reasons. I was coming out of, I think we came out of um, the second accelerator and the second accelerator class. And it was at that point, we had done a bunch of um, like VC intros. We did like a special pitch night specifically for VCs and, and like loved seeing, you know, how one impressed they were with some of the companies. Um, you know, one of those companies actually, um, I don't know, by this airing, we'll know, but, you know, was able to get some investment later. Um, but, you know, I, I knew that there was still room for more because not all the companies fit that B2B SaaS, right? I did, I have a, a, in my current accelerator, I have a wine company, I have a wine brand, I have a couple of direct-to-consumer um, software plays. I have, you know, all sorts of things that may be outside of the scope of a lot of the local uh, VC economy. And so um, for me, it, it was really easy to come up with my, <laughs> with my thesis, right? Like one, black Latinx women, um, two, um, industry agnostic, meaning that, you know, we look at everything. 
um, with the opportunity to potentially um, invest so long as it, there was a road to profitability and, and potential exit, whatever that may mean to you, because that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and because we come with, um, you know, I think because a lot of underrepresented founders, and I hate using the word underrepresented, I'll just say black, but because a lot of black founders um, do have a harder time, you know, getting funding, they tend to bootstrap longer which means that they're able to get a little bit more traction than a lot of other companies that might think about going into accelerators. Um, but they're also really, really cash efficient. And I think that's something that we will be able to take advantage of. Um, another thing that um, became really apparent in our thesis and why we chose direct-to-consumer CPG and e-commerce is you know, even though the tech ecosystem is an ecosystem and there's tons of, of tech companies, there is also an entire entrepreneurial ecosystem out there that may not understand how how venture works, how to get it, what it looks like, if their company is, is uh, ready for it. And so we also saw it as an opportunity to sort of blur the line between uh, what's tech entrepreneurship and what's regular entrepreneurship. Um, and, and that is what led us to looking at, you know, direct-to-consumer brands, um, the, the CPG companies, you know, there should be tons of, of black Warby Parkers and Everlanes and all birds, right? Um, it's all about how you position the company um, and what your branding looks like and, and how you're utilizing automation, uh, which is also tech and tech enabled. And so we also were able to open up um, another type of business, another type of investment model that will allow us to tap into deal flow that no one else is paying attention to. Um, so it became really, um, it became a great equalizer for us um, to be able to utilize venture capital in a totally different way than, than what traditionally has been seen. And I want to dig into this thing of ownership. I think in my mind, and, and until I started to really understand uh, raising funding and um, uh, giving up equity in return for that funding, I think a lot of times in the minds of uh, people who don't have a lot of experience with venture, one of the things it's like, well, ownership means you own it 100%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you're going to raise funding, you're going to give up that ownership. Let's let's talk about the good, bad, and the ugly yeah. of that raising money and giving mm -hmm. up ownership while still keeping in mind one of the core missions of, you know, kind of why you started this, which is the, the retention of ownership. I'm so glad you asked this because um, no one ever asked me, no one ever asked me this question and I have a very solid opinion about it. So, um, a lot of times venture capital could come off as predatory. I'm gonna say, I'll say it, I'll say it out loud, right? Like it's all about how much can you earn? Can you get double digit ownership? Like these are all the things that, you know, us as venture capitalists want because that means better returns and, and all these great things. Um, but when you're, but what we also see are people that continue to raise money and raise money and get these high valuations and aren't really building profitable companies, right? Like we saw that with Uber, we see that where we work. Um, so there's something wrong there, right? Um, and so the way that we approach it is um, our goal first, and I, and I mentioned this a bit, a bit ago, is because we are investing um, with companies that generally have a little bit more traction or a lot more cash efficient, they raise what they need, but their road to profitability is in a place where all they really need is a round of two of investment to scale. And then they become self-sufficient to where they don't have to raise anymore. So the companies that we're investing in most of the time, and hopefully this will be the case and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, don't have to raise past a series A, which means they stay non, not as diluted as they normally would be. 
Um, I would love for all of our founders to be able to maintain ownership upwards of 50 to 60%. And that's at the low end. Um, because it is still very important for me that they have ownership because that is what's going to be the way um, that wealth is, is passed down. And I'm not, you know, I want to invest because I see passion in, an, in, in a company or in a founder. Um, I want them to feel like they have ownership in the company. And then I want their employees to make sure they have ownership too. Um, because when those exits do happen or, or when someone is acquired, that everyone is able to win. Um, and, and I think that's what we, we need and deserve. I think we have to be a little bit more, um, in, in my case, I call it forgiving, right? Um, uh, of those, those big sort of fundraisers and uh, putting a lot of capital in a company that, that may not necessarily need all of that capital. Um, there, there's some responsibility there. Um, and so the way that we try to maintain ownership is, is in trying to be as mindful of that as we can. That's great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you have to remind uh, kind of the startup world in general that it's important to build profitable companies, right? The, the fact that folks need to keep going out and raising money and giving up more and more equity is because they can't get to that quickly enough. Uh -huh. And like you said, the, the founders that you're finding because they have no uh, kind of expectation, right? That they're gonna be able to go out and raise, they tend to bootstrap longer and, and they're further along in getting to profitability than others have to be. Yep. Uh, let's the talk about- the, go ahead. Fit. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> no, I was just saying the road to product market fit is so much shorter because they spend more time getting there right. before they even raise, right? Right. As opposed to raising when it, it's just an idea. Right. That's why you have to raise so much because you're like trying to figure it out. You know, you're pre-product, pre-revenue. Um, but when you're a little post-product, post-revenue, then it's like we just need to build a new product because the MVP works and we know it works. Right. Like that, that becomes really, really interesting um, and really fun. And, and what happens when more of those are happening? Right. Yeah. And we're actually in the market solving problems and we yeah. have customers to prove it and the customers yeah. love us and they want to keep it. Keep, you know, they're referring to us. We're retaining them. And, and, and all of those things. So uh, in terms of where you're pulling startups from, for mm -hmm. the accelerator and for startups that you're looking to invest in, is this a national fund or regional fund or particular areas that you're highlighting? And then what are you looking for, for, for either if they come to you directly and you, you like the idea, you like the company you want to invest or they go through the accelerator, what's the average check size that you guys are writing? Yeah, so so we are regional. Um, we say between the coasts. So for me, that means anywhere you know that's not California and probably New York. So we can invest anywhere um, between the coasts. Uh, we do have a focus on Midwest and Southwest because that's where we are. We are on Fund One, so it's a smaller fund, and so we want to focus more on you know sort of Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Kentucky. You know, in our kind of our stratosphere, our circle of influence that's, that we're right next to. Um, and, and our initial check sizes are anywhere between 200 and 500. Um, and we can do follow on um, upwards of 350 to 750, I believe, in some of our winners. So we are able to, to follow on a bit. Um, and, you know, I am an open book. Anybody that reaches out to me more likely than not can usually get a meeting with me. I'm really not hard to find. Um, I usually will meet with anybody. Um, so the, the getting to me is not hard ever, um, because we're in kind of the tail end of finishing our raise, you know, it takes a little bit longer. Um, I'm not, I've only technically made one commitment so far. 
um, because we are still kind of on the tail end of, of finishing things up. But once we are finished, um, I imagine our process should take no more than two or three weeks tops. Um, so we can get people in and out. Um, you know, they can come through the accelerator. I mean, obviously that's how a lot of people come to us. They, they know about us because of Be Nimble First and they find out about 68 Capital later. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, building a lot of really great relationships over the last three, three or four years um, before we kind of finished this fund. And so, you know, have kind of these built-in networks of, of just founders and people and companies and friends that send me people all the time. Um, and so finding companies is actually not as hard as I think a lot of people make it seem. Um, maybe it's just because I stay outside and, I, and I'm always looking for people, but finding them is great. You know, I think also being formerly a tech stars keeps me really tapped in um, into all the companies that are going through tech stars. And so I try my best to, to mentor as many as I can and uh, meet with as many as I can and, and help, you know, my, my old PM and MD buddies if they need um, you know, recommendations of companies. Um, I also did VC Unlocked, which means I'm now tapped into the 500 Startups Network. And so I also get to, you know, kind of pull from my peers, which is really great. Um, and, and that's really been helpful too, because um, with, with having other people that are, you know, fund one, fund two, also focused on diverse investing, um, that's opportunity for us to co-invest. So a lot of times we are bringing opportunities to each other. Uh, which is also really cool. Um, so yeah, I, it's it's coming from all sides, but um, I, it's not hard to find me and not not hard to get in touch with me at all. That's great. And, and speaking of getting in touch with you, so if somebody's listening to this interview, they see some of the content that we're going to put out after this, and they want to participate in the accelerator, or they want to pitch you uh, their idea or their company, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so um, email's always fine. Um, I'm Kelly at 68. It's very hard to mouth that. So it's the word 60, the number eight, dot capital. Um, that's my email. And then I'm everywhere online, in LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at uh, Kelly Nicole. It's Kelly with an I, Nicole with a K. Okay, great. There you have it, guys. You you have the the, the, the history you have the companies that she's working on, you have her investment thesis. We have basically, and Kelly has basically provided you everything you need <laughs> in order to be able to reach out to her, to engage with her, whether you're ready to join the accelerator, whether you have a company to pitch, like she said, she is an open book with wide experience, right? Looking and she's industry agnostic and she has a fund and she's looking to deploy capital. This will be my last question. And this, this is, again, a bit of serendipity. <laughs> Last week, I sat down with Sam Badu of Flurry. <laughs> he was on last Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And then I look up and I see, and this is the same day that I think he participated in your pitch competition. Uh -huh. uh, and he actually won. And the thing that stuck out to me was that he received, I think it was $15,000 mm -hmm. with no dilution. No. None. And, and, you know, people talk about what their values are, but even before we had this conversation, your values were already on display and we just explored the issue of ownership and ownership retention. And so that's just a sign that, you know, Kelly is the kind of person who, you know, sticks by her word and she demonstrates that in, in, in the real world. Now, that's a little bit of praise. I wanted to ask you about this. Okay. This is my last question companies solving problems on the continent. Mm. 
there's this idea that in the diaspora, right, Africans or people of African descent, Black people in America, in Europe, Asia, et cetera, tend to solve problems for where they live. But we understand that the continent on the rise, just as you know, over the last two decades, it has been Asia. Mm-hmm. We understand that the next frontier is Africa. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing in terms of your portfolio or companies like Flary, who's trying to solve the issue of health and health insurance in Africa? What are you seeing and would you like to see more of it? Let me preface all of this by saying, um, so my retirement plan is actually to move to Ghana. So, so I am very yes. invested in the continent. And the reason why is, and I don't know how many people know this, but Ghana is, has the most um, fertile land in the world. And so I've always wanted to like have my own farm and like just kind of live, right? Um, and so that's always been my like, I'm going to retire. I'm done with life. I've done all the things. Like that's what I plan to do. So I plan to literally live the rest of my life in Africa. Um, and so when I think about, the types of companies we want to invest in. Obviously, we invest only in the, in the U.S., so we don't currently invest um, overseas yet, not for this fund. Of Hopefully, we will soon, um, maybe on the fund too. Um, but I am very tapped into what is going on in Africa and keep my eyes and ears to the street of what's happening on the continent, um, which means um, I get the privilege of meeting and talking to a lot of founders that are building things specifically for the continent. And so um, that is just really important to me. I, I remember the first time I talked to Sam, um, cause we got intro I believe by Rev1 Ventures introduced us um, in first meeting, like we talked, he, you know, I usually set 30 minute meetings. We talked, he told me what he was doing. I asked my questions. I said, Hey, technically my <laughs> accelerator is closed. Like the applications are closed, but I'd love for you to participate. <laughs> so can you apply? And I'd love to have you. Um, and he did, you know, and Sam as is super smart. I think what he's doing is top notch. Um, and I don't even think he understands the magnitude of the possibility of growth of what he has on his hands. Um, and because he does it with such grace and, um, with such just, I don't want to say humble cause humble is not the word I like to use, but I mean, it is humility, right? Um, he just wants to solve a problem and it's super clear. And I think it was clear to our judges. I think it was clear to our audience. It's definitely been clear to, our um, our accelerator class for this year um, of what he's doing. And so um, it's important for me to look at and invest at anything that's, that's helping what's happening over in Africa, because I, I don't see anything but opportunity. And if that's where I plan to live, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, it's gotta, you know, it's gotta be up to, up to par with, with how I, it needs to be. So that's, I'm betting all my money on black, no matter what, what country. Okay. <laughs> Hey, listen, we're going to end it on that. We couldn't have ended it on a better note. Uh, And folks, this has been Miss Kelly Jones of Be Nimble Foundation and 68 Capital. And I got to leave you guys with my one takeaway. And the thing that's resounding with me the most is ownership. You know, bootstrapping isn't the thing that a lot of people think is, you know, their first option. But demonstrated by the companies that go through the accelerator and the companies that are funded by 68 Capital, 
bootstrap as long as you can. Try to get as much traction as you can. And the payoff for paying that cost up front is the retention of ownership long-term. Thank you for joining us on another episode. Peace.